Well, good morning, church. It is my joy and my privilege to be able to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. What a joy it is to sing the truth that we just lifted our hearts and voices in, right? He alone is our shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who leads us through the darkest valley. What a joy, what a solace, what a comfort to know such truth. And I pray that we would know that truth this morning even as we walk through this text together. So please imagine with me, if you would, just for a moment, that you are on your deathbed. (laughs) Not a very bright note to start with this morning, I know. But just imagine you're on your deathbed and you're expected to live uh, not a few months or, or a few weeks, but really a few days. And you have a friend who is much younger than you and this friend of yours is dear to you and you've grown very close together over the years and you have been a great influence upon this young friend of yours. But extenuating situations and circumstances have put you and that friend many miles apart and you can't be with one another. And you can't, you don't even have the strength really to speak to this person on the phone. And so you have the cherished text message moments back and forth. By the way, it's quite an interesting thing if you Google deathbed text messages. It's quite a precious and interesting thing uh, to look through, you can Google that later. But just imagine you have those cherished text messaging moments in which you are able to send a message here and there. But because you love and care for this young friend of yours, you want to see them flourish in life and, and live victoriously. And so therefore, you have some very important final words to say to them. They are going to be your last words. And these final words of yours, <laughs> keep in mind, they, they're gonna go far beyond the tips for maintaining good relationships, being a good worker. It's gonna go far beyond encouragement to have a healthy diet and exercise so you can live a long, happy life. It's gonna go far beyond tips for how to live financially successful. But because these are your last words to them and because you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your words, your final words to them will challenge them to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your words to them, your text messaging to them will warn them of difficulties and temptations that will come in this life. They will be words that will call them to live the Christian life to the fullest, to the glory of God, no matter the cost. And so therefore you'd want to give them all the essentials in this final text message of yours for them to truly live a successful life. A life that they could live well and say at the end of their life, I fought the fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And that is exactly this morning what Paul does in our passage this morning to young Timothy. At first glance this morning, you might think, oh, okay, 
According to this passage here, Chris is going to preach about preaching. And that's very much true, but the complete truth that I want us to grab this morning is that the principles that pour out of this text this morning is not only for pastoral ministry, but for the life and ministry of every Christian here today. So with that in mind, please read our text together. 2 Timothy chapter four, verses one to five. Some of Paul's final words to young Timothy. The word of God reads, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In light of God's word this morning, in light of this text that we have before us, our theme will be cultivating a mindset and ministry of perseverance without compromising the truth. So, where do we find ourselves as we parachute drop right into 2 Timothy chapter four? Well, Paul is nearing the end of his life and ministry. He's facing his own impending death. He's about to be beheaded in a Roman prison under Nero's rule. But he is counting on young Timothy, who is the pastor at the church in Ephesus during this time, to carry the baton of truth to the next generation. So, what has Paul done to ensure his preparation? Well, he's written two brief letters full of advice, warning, encouragement, and instruction on how pastoral ministry is to be done in the local church. And so we have 1st and 2nd Timothy. Uh, It's interesting, 1st and 2nd Timothy combined together, if you were to put it in 12 size font, ends up only being about 10 pages long. That was Timothy's complete training manual on pastoral ministry. Along, of course, with Paul's personal example and mentorship in prior years. And we see that even in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Jesus. So, Pastor Paul tells Pastor Timothy to hold fast to his words which are in accordance with the truth. Timothy, you must not only guard this treasure in your heart and life, but you must also pass it on, pass the baton of truth on. Second Timothy Two, verse two, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is preparing him, and he's preparing him very well, even though we have a 10-page text message to Timothy. 
In fact, 1 Timothy, the theme of 1 Timothy is a manual for church life, and you'll see that in one brief 12-minute reading of the letter of 1 Timothy. It's a manual for church life. The first three chapters of 1 Timothy is Paul's direct encouragement and instruction to Timothy. And then the last three chapters of 1 Timothy, he's telling him this is what a healthy body of Christ will look like as you stick to the scriptures. Then the theme of 2 Timothy flows as follows. Ministry is a spiritual combat. Ministry is a spiritual combat. Why is ministry a spiritual combat? I thought it was all peaches and cream and, and, and joyful. And Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, let's move on. That's not all. It is indeed a spiritual combat. Why? Why? Because war is always being raged against truth. Always. How vital then is it, this mentorship and ministerial training that it was for Timothy to receive from Paul because as 2 Timothy 3, 13 to 17 warns and encourages us, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, his mother and his grandmother, right? Lois and Eunice, he learned it from them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, (laughs) with such surety and confidence in the God-breathed scriptures, And because of the lies and deceptions that do indeed creep into the church, we have Paul's charge to Timothy to preach the word. The charge to preach the word. We see this in verses one and two. Now, before the president enters into the execution of his office, he takes the following oath and it reads as follows. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. End quote. But the charge given to the President of the United States of America, as high and as important as that is, is man-made, and it is subject to change, and therefore it falls infinitely short compared to the charge given by God the Holy Spirit through Paul to Timothy to preach the word. Timothy, here's my final reminder for you to ready yourself. And his first instruction is, preach the word. But we see here the staggering setting of the charge in verse one. This is Paul's primary preface to preaching. 
Verse one, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Now, (laughs) do we catch the grandness of this accountability? Such a compelling seriousness for such a task. If, if that intro isn't staggering enough for us to add more weightiness to the charge, Paul says to Timothy back in 1 Timothy 5.21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels <laughs> to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. And again, in 1 Timothy 6. 12, Paul reminds Timothy that yes, he made the confession of his faith in Christ Jesus before many witnesses, but the one before whom he truly and fully stands is God. 1 Timothy 6, 13 to 14, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified of the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as wonderful as this charge is to Timothy, because of his calling, he ought not to forget to tremble and to be humbled because of the privilege and weight of such a task to be an ambassador of the king's word. Timothy, when you speak to the people, your number one audience is the triune God of the universe. The one before whom angels tremble and hide their face, Isaiah 6 verse two. Timothy, understand this. Christ is the judge who knows every intention of your heart and of the people's heart, Romans 2.16, Hebrews 4.12. Timothy, understand this. Jesus is coming back again and his kingdom will reign over all the earth according to the very word you preach, Zechariah 14, Psalm 103. In light of these realities, preach the word. question. What does it mean to preach the word? Does it mean to stand before the people and make a suggestion about what God's word says? Does it mean for you to give an opinion of what the scriptures say and for you to stand on your soapbox? Does it mean to raise your voice real loud about whatever you're saying to the people? Listen to what Kenneth West says about this term. He writes, quote, by hearing this term, Timothy would call to mind the imperial herald, spokesman of the emperor, proclaiming in a formal, grave, and authoritative manner, which must be listened to, the message which the emperor gave him to announce. It brought before him the picture of the town official who would make a proclamation in a public gathering. The word is in a construction which makes it a summary command to be obeyed at once. It is a sharp command as in military language. 
This should be the pattern for the preacher today. His preaching should be characterized by that dignity which comes from the consciousness of the fact that he is an official herald of the king of kings. It should be accompanied by that note of authority which will command the respect, careful attention, and proper reaction of the listeners. There is no place for clowning in the pulpit of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the preacher, as a herald, cannot choose his message. He is given a message to proclaim by his sovereign. If he will not proclaim that, let him step down from his exalted position, end quote. And to that, I, and I hope most of us here would say this morning, amen. Preaching is not a show. It's not entertainment. It's not a philosophy influenced by worldliness. It's not a soapbox speech or a TED talk. It's not thus says the people or thus says the preacher. It's thus says the Lord. It is thus says the Lord. A definition to cap off what we just quoted a moment ago, to preach is to herald, to proclaim, and even to announce as a town crier, as the town crier would come into the square in the evening because that's when everybody would be back home after a long day's work and the town crier would make important announcement and he would give the important news And oftentimes it would be because to announce that the battle has been won and that we're safe and that we're okay. It's no wonder in light of this call to preach the word, to proclaim God's word and not yours, it's no wonder that Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. This great preface to preaching in the sight of Almighty God is actually an urgency to preach the word. It's not to hold someone back. Yes, we must be careful because not all are to be preachers and and teachers because they will incur a stricter judgment as James chapter three tells us but it's actually an urgency to preach his word, why? Because of the prophecy given in verses three and four of our text this morning. And you say, well, Chris, you're missing some some words here, some verses, don't worry, we'll come back to it in a moment. But please notice the urgency to preach his word because of the prophecy given in verses three and four. We see the conditions also in which we preach the word, not just before Almighty God, but understanding the conditions in which we preach the word. Verses three and four. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Do you see the setting? Do you see the conditions in which we preach, not only in the first century, but today? The condition in which we preach the word is among truth haters. Now, now please notice, the text doesn't say that they, the, the, the people, won't endure doctrine. It says they won't endure sound doctrine. 
That's what they will not tolerate. In other words, they'll accept really any kind of teaching so long as it is not healthy, true, right. The word sound for sound doctrine, sound teaching is the Greek word where we get the word hygiene. So in other words, they don't want the clean, pure, healthy teaching of Christ's word alone. They don't want to hear what would heal their soul. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, under the influence of the, the man of lawlessness and the spirit of Antichrist, says, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. When Stephen, when the deacon Stephen in Acts chapter seven proclaimed Christ and exposed the people's sin from the Old Testament scriptures, what did they do in response? Acts 7.57, they covered their ears. They would not put up with sound doctrine because it said what they didn't want to hear. Convicting them and making demands upon them that they did not want to follow. So these people would turn to others who would then tell them what was more palatable. Like the Old Testament false prophets in those times, these false teachers would teach whatever their audience wanted to hear. And Timothy, knew this at the very beginning of his ministry, the conditions in which he would be preaching in. He, he knows this all the, way very, all the way back to the very beginning of Paul's first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse three. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now, What's strange, doctrine? What's strange doctrines? It's simple. Strange doctrines, strange teachings is anything that contradicts the whole counsel of God. It's anything that contradicts it. These people had itching ears, which means they were seeking novel teaching and craving what, what satisfied their curiosity. And to this end, they had their pursuit to find teachers that suited their own desires. And their desires, the sinful heart of man's desires, are not for God. They're not for the truth that saves and sanctifies, but for self and for every ungodly thing. We see it in 2 Timothy 3, one to five, as Paul continues to prep Timothy, saying, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and here's the catch, holding to a form of godliness. Although they've denied its power, what does Paul tell Timothy? Avoid such men as these. Whoa. So we not only will be preaching and teaching among truth haters who have a form of godliness, 
They say they know God. They say they know the word of God. They say they, they, they love it, I think. But yet, they are in lockstep with this list that we just read in 2 Timothy 3. We preach in the condition of truth haters. And not only truth haters, it goes beyond that to preaching among myth lovers. Myth lovers. So, so they will not only hate the truth and turn away from the truth, they will turn aside then and chase hard after myths. We see that in the end of verse four. I think Justin Peters puts it well to understand what myths are. Myths are false teachings masquerading as Christian doctrine. We aren't talking here, right, about Greek mythology or Harry Potter stuff. We aren't even talking about the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings stories because why? Why? Because those things, they don't make express truth claims. Paul urges Timothy instead, 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with worldly myths. In other words, the false teachings that are gonna come out of unregenerate hearts in the world. And what are some of those things, what does some of those things look like that, that, that in the first century they had to deal with and we still even have to deal with today? Forbidding of marriage and abstaining from certain foods, 1 Timothy 4, 3. That's a false teaching. That's a myth. There's other myths that people hold on to like no dancing, no drinking of alcoholic beverages, but we see throughout the scriptures those things being appropriated. Myths often have the appearance of truth and may even seem wise and even godly, but they are at best, Colossians 2, teachings of men. And at worst, 1 Timothy 4, 1, doctrines of demons. Paul warns that there will come a time when people in masses will turn away from the truth and turn aside to its opposite, myths. Not mythic literature, again, but the teaching of wolves in sheep's clothing as Jesus warns us of in John chapter 10. So, Timothy, stand firm as a soldier of Christ. Don't give in, don't compromise, preach the word because we live among truth haters and myth lovers. And no wonder, no wonder Paul warned Timothy to, as he'd be in the midst of this pressure to compromise the word of God, to do what the people wanted, no wonder Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention, first of all, to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. How do you do that? By sticking to the truth of God's word. That's how. Pay close attention. And so this brings us to, therefore then, okay, well, what does it look like? What do the components look like for, for preaching the word? We see this in verses two and five. And what we notice here in verses two and five is that these are eight essentials to fulfilling your ministry God's way in verses two and five. So please notice this. Paul is not just telling Timothy 
how he should preach. He's not just instructing him on how to minister, he's telling him how to live. He's telling him how to live. These two waves of rapid fire directives in verses two and five, separated by the warnings of verses three and four, are intended to impress upon Timothy what is entailed in faithfully proclaiming the whole counsel of God. So this isn't a list of eight things to do alongside preaching the word. It's a reminder of what a life devoted to the preaching of God's word should look like as a faithful soldier of Christ so as to fulfill one's ministry. And so we see here that the first essential to fulfilling your ministry is, might sound like a broken record or a CD that's skipping now, but the first essential to fulfilling your ministry is preach the word. This is the foundation. Christ by his word is the authority on life and godliness. An ambassador of the king precisely relays the king's message. It's been said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's false. We, our lives must show forth the love of Christ and the word of God, yes but that is a false quote. Why? How do we know this? Because Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 17 clearly say the people need a preacher. And Romans 10, 17 says that the word must be preached. Saving faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the first essential to your ministry is preach the word. The second one is, be ready in every season. Verse two, be ready in every season. This Greek term does have the idea of being ready, but it's stronger than that. It's more so, it means stand up to, carry on, stick to it, stand firm and stand ready. To do what? To speak the truth when it's timely or untimely. When it's popular, and when it's not, when it's in fashion or when it's not. And, and just because we're in the Bible belt doesn't mean it's always timely. It doesn't mean that it's always in fashion, certainly not. If you, if you go to your local Starbucks or if you are really brave and you spend an hour at the mall, you'll quickly see that any and every hairdo and clothing style is basically, well, in style and acceptable and really not to be judged by society, but not so with the preaching of the word. You just look at Isaiah, you just look at Jeremiah, John the Baptist, John Rogers, and countless others who preach the word in season and out of season, and we see what happened to them. We see what happened to the word incarnate. He was rejected by his own people in the darkest of history's timeline. And nonetheless, he came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Timothy, in any and, any and every circumstance, regardless of your personal feelings or the audience's reactions, preach the word. Whether the door is open or not, 
preach it. Whether people say they want it or not, preach it. Make it the heart and soul of your ministry, no matter how many church growth experts tell you to do otherwise in compromising the word of God, be at task in season and out of season and preach the word. What about us today? Like Timothy, we are commanded to always be ready. First Peter 3.15. Be always ready. Be always prepared to give a defense of the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Listen, dear Christian, this morning it is easy to clock in and clock out of our faith, thinking that we represent God at church and in our ministries, but not throughout the week. This was not an option for Timothy And it's not an option for us. If you're a Christian, you are a 1 Peter 2, 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies, the goodness, the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's your task in season and out of season. Whether we are speaking to a crowd or whether we're changing a tire or we're in line at the grocery store or walking around our neighborhood, we should always be ready in season and out of season to speak the truth, to speak the truth to a watching world. Now, the next three essentials to accomplishing one's ministry comes in quick succession. Quick succession, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So we come to reprove, verse two. Our definition is to refute falsehood, to tell people they are wrong or that they have done something wrong. Now, some of us have no problem in fulfilling this aspect of ministry. It is needed. It is called upon by God's word. But as we'll see here in a moment, especially how careful we need to be, nonetheless, reprove. And look at the seriousness of it here in Ephesians 5, 11 to 12. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, and here's the word, even expose them. Bring it to light. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Now, this reproving is certainly out of fashion in our world today, right? And in many churches, it's out of fashion, out of season in these postmodern times in which we live where every kind of truth claim and lifestyle is to be tolerated. It's to be tolerated. Everything from evolution, theistic evolution, to reincarnation, to abortion, pornography, and adultery, to greediness, to foolish talk and coarse jesting, it's supposed to all be tolerated even in the church. And it was trying to be tolerated in the church because in the Ephesians 5 passage, if you back up just a few verses, that's the list that I just gave you. That, that, that people who were calling themselves Christians were participating in. But if we try to never tell people they are r- wrong, then we're not fulfilling our responsibility 
to reprove. We're not fulfilling our responsibility to speak the truth. Think of Nathan towards David. Nathan told David after giving a parable, comparing to him to what the sin looked like in his life, he said, David, you are the man. You are the one who's guilty. This is what you've done. He reproved his adultery and murder. Then Jesus in Matthew 5 reproves our adultery and our murder because as he goes on to explain there in Matthew 5, he says, if you've even had a lustful thought towards another, you are guilty of adultery. If you've even said you fool or I hate you to your brother or your sister, you are guilty of murder before God's courts. The true Christian stops and says, thank you, Lord, for reproving me because apart from your reproving, I would not know the gospel. I would not know your grace and what I needed to be saved. So the next essential to fulfilling our ministry is not only reprove, but to rebuke, also in verse two. And this word is even stronger. The definition is to give a formal, strong disapproval to warn of an impending penalty. Timothy's duty is not only to expose and refute error and sin and false teaching, but also to clearly denounce each appearance of those things as the evil that it is. In Titus 1 verse 9, he emphatically makes this same duty the responsibility of every elder in the church. Titus 1 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. 1 Timothy 1 13, Paul says that some people rebellious men, liars, the Cretans who are lazy gluttons, those who teach for the sake of dishonest gain, Paul tells some people, he tells them that some people will need to be rebuked even sharply, Titus 1, 13. They need to be rebuked sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. In fact, when Paul gives this same charge to Titus, listen to how strongly he words it in Titus 2, 15. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Listen, dear church, I know, I understand. We understand how hard it is to be faithful to this task, to reprove and rebuke, but if we do not, we are not being faithful. We are not loving the people. We are not warning them of their impending penalty if they turn not from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ who died and rose again on their behalf. And so this sharp rebuking though, we have to understand that jars our postmodern sensibilities, doesn't it? It is a critical aspect, a critical aspect of our calling. Lest we are looking for a license for meanness and unkindness, this command, this essential for ministry to rebuke someone is not a prescription for angry preaching. It's not. 
And how do we know this? Well, we know this by our fifth essential and imperative in fulfilling one's ministry. Number five, exhort with great patience and instruction. This, this verb is a sweet word. It's closely related to the name Jesus used to speak of the Holy Spirit and the comforter in John 16. It's also the word used in Luke 2.25 where Christ is referred to as the consolation of Israel. So this is the idea of encouragement, comfort, refreshment, all in the form of a gentle entreaty, a verbal summons, a tender exhortation towards truth. This applies to true biblical preaching and shepherding, discipleship, counseling, as well as parenting. The aim of everything we see here, the rebukes and the encouragements is for the good of the hearers. Never their hurt, never their hurt. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, biblical preaching is a guide and corrective for the sheep as well as a balm to the soul. We must not beat the sheep, but correct and feed them in love with long-suffering, end quote. Exhortation must be done with complete, complete, complete patience and instruction. And this echoes what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, and here's the the, the hopeful, prayerful outcome, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. But again, again, in these postmodern times, many think that gentleness excludes every kind of rebuke and correction. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. It's clear that Paul saw no contradiction between gentleness and firm rebuke. And this is what we tell our children all the time, right? I love you, dear child. I'm not hating you, I'm loving you by steering you from running off of the cliff in your rebellion, in your disobedience, I'm loving you. This might seem and feel like hatred, this rod, this staff, it is love. It is life-saving love. So this has to be our perspective as well or we will never be up to the simple yet far-reaching task Paul lays on our shoulders here to exhort with great patience and instruction, those who are in sin and those who are teaching false doctrine. Let's face it, we live in a time where clear teaching, especially if if it includes rebuke for wrongdoing and refuting falsehood is not tolerated by most people and yet they say that they are more tolerant than anyone who dares to correct error. Which again is why Paul interrupts this cycle of essentials and imperatives with a prophecy telling Timothy that such times are on their way. Verses three and four again. And these times, dear church, I think as we know, have come. They're well on their way. There are many who cannot endure, nor do they want the truth. 
I can't tell you how many interactions I've had with people over the past two or so years, even in our very own neighborhood, where you go to even just speak one word or you even mention the name of Jesus and they say, goodbye, have a good day. And it's still shocking. They don't want the truth. Why? Especially because there are many, even as our text has said, they have itching ears. That is to say, just entertain me. Just show me something new, just like the Athenians spent their days doing nothing but telling or hearing something new in Acts chapter 17. They just, they just had the hunger and the lust for novelty. And it's the, it's the same pathology that makes people obsessively surf the internet in search of the latest trending topic. They just gotta have something else. They just gotta have something new. And, and not just in the world, but come on, let's just bring it into the church as well. We gotta spice things up. So, since if they don't find that, they will find teachers to suit their own passions. It's very easy to find. You can go to it, short distance from here, or you can just hop on YouTube and enjoy all that we've already seen laid out in 2 Timothy 3 there. They'll find teachers who suit their own passions. Give us myths and then we'll call them truths and, and we'll still claim Christianity at the same time. People want comedians, they want rock stars, storytellers, celebrities, imaginers, clowns in the pulpit to tickle their emotions or ideologies to make them feel good. Beware, this is a worldly cultural attitude that is hostile to the authority of the revealed truth of God. It's hostile to it. So Timothy, don't be like many leaders who will be trying to fit into the culture. And really the accountability really falls on the people in this part because the people are the ones that want it and then it's the teachers who then cave in to it. Don't follow the, the, the flow of the world's fashions but rather keep your head, Timothy. Remain focused in the mission of preaching the word. And this brings us to the last cycle of three essentials to fulfilling one's ministry, which Paul, in rapid fire succession again, gives to young Timothy. And this is what brings us to verse five. Essential number six, Timothy, be sober-minded. Please notice, Paul says here, but as for you, but as for you, be sober-minded. In contrast to every popular trend that's out there, Timothy, but as for you, be sober-minded. Though this is not about the, the consumption of wine, it's the same idea of influence. Paul is speaking of, and, and here's our definition, alertness, serious thoughtfulness, dignity, Watchfulness, this is the idea. It's so serious that Paul told the Ephesian elders as he was departing that day in Acts chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in and among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. It's so serious, Paul, 
how you need to be sober-minded, be watchful. Now remember, these essentials, these essentials for fulfilling one's ministry is still being expanded on one central idea that is at the head of this list. Preach the word. Timothy, handle the scriptures soberly. Treat it with the gravity that it warrants, that it demands. Don't clown around with it. Don't trifle with it, especially when the people are demanding to have their ears tickled. Rather, you are to impress upon the people the full weight of the importance of God's word. And if you remain sober-minded in this task of preaching the word and sticking to the word, then guess what? Suffering will come. Which brings us to the seventh essential for fulfilling one's ministry. Endure hardship. Running back quickly to 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, we see there that Paul invites Timothy as a soldier in this aspect of fulfilling his ministry. Listen to what he says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then in 2 Timothy 2, 3, Paul summons him to his calling, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. (laughs) Listen to what one seminary student said to R.C. Sproul after class, quote, the seminary student said, if we're kind enough and positive enough in what we preach about and as tender-hearted and compassionate and winsome as we can be, then it ought to be possible to pastor a church in America without causing anyone offense and without being persecuted for our faith. In a culture like ours where the gospel has been fairly well penetrated, we ought to be able to live and minister faithfully without conflict of any, of any kind, end quote. R.C. Sproul's reply was, then you must do something besides ministry. Dear people, this is an inescapable aspect of every minister's duty who is faithful to the whole counsel of God. As Paul doubly reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's only a matter of time. As you faithfully walk verse by verse through the scriptures, there will be attacks you must endure and perhaps attacks you didn't expect to face. Paul tells Timothy he needs to be bold, to embrace suffering, to stand up against opposition and take the blows he would inevitably be dealt and to even die for the truth if necessary. And we even see that Timothy indeed was in prison for a time according to Hebrews 13, 23, as Paul says he was released. It's been said like this, if people get mad at the preacher, then the preacher needs to tone it down. But it's interesting because that isn't what Paul said to Timothy. In fact, it's the polar opposite of what Paul said to Timothy. He said, endure suffering for what you are doing, preaching the word. As you preach the word in season and out of season, don't cave in, don't give up. Well, how did you do it, Paul? 
Why didn't you give in? Why didn't you cave in? So easy to just go along with the Athenians who just want a little twist here and there on the scriptures to make the scriptures fit their desires, their life, and to still claim that they're a follower of Christ. Why didn't you give in, Paul? What kept you going? Well, just one help here on this point would be 2 Timothy 2, 8 to 10. Listen to what Paul says. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Did you see that? This is how he, this is how Paul endured hardship. He had his mind on exactly what he just explained to Timothy here. Listen, the promised seed of salvation has come and he's come through all the prophecies, even the descendant of David, he's come. He's risen from the dead, proving his power and victory over sin and death and hell and Satan. The word of God also is not in chains, though I may be. God's people, as he says in our text, will hear and believe. The chosen will hear and will believe. My sheep will hear my voice and they will come. Oh yeah, and he says in that passage, and we'll be in eternal glory forever together. (laughs) This is why Paul endures suffering for preaching the truth, just because of those few small promises. So Paul brings us then full circle with the eighth essential for fulfilling one's ministry. Number eight, do the work of an evangelist. Our definition here is one who announces glad tidings. It's a messenger of the gospel, a preacher of the good news. And we see that this was once the ministry of angels in Luke 2 and Matthew 1 when they announced glad tidings of great joy that the Savior has come. Evangelism was... the ministry of angels, and we see its word there, euangelion, we hear the word angel in that, in the messenger of the word of God. That was once the ministry of angels, but now this is now the ministry of men, Acts chapter 10. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 10, you wonder, why didn't the angel just give Cornelius the gospel? Instead, he said, Cornelius, you're gonna, you're gonna receive the gospel through the apostle Peter when you go to the place where I tell you to go. It's now the ministry of men. We see it in 2 Corinthians 5.20 as well. We are ambassadors of the king's word. And Ephesians 4.11, it's a gift to the church, the evangelist. So whatever the obstacles, the opposition of false teachers, distractions or discouragements, Timothy was not to allow any of them to keep him from his appointed task. All of this is about preaching, (laughs) It's all about preaching. Faithfulness in the task of an evangelist especially means keep the gospel at the center of the message. Keep Christ at the center of the message. Keep the story of redemption at the center of the message. Do the work of an evangelist. Proclaim the gospel and never lose sight of it. So, wrapping it all together, 
Paul gives the capstone finalizing command to Timothy and here's his exclamation point in verse five. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. Paul, please notice again, Paul is not telling Timothy here to do anything unique or extraordinary apart from the scriptures. (laughs) But rather, persevere then let nothing compromise your ministry, your mission as a soldier of Christ. But then you might stop here and think, it says fulfill your ministry. Okay, what are Timothy's duties? What is my ministry? Fulfill your ministry. How will he fulfill his ministry? How will I fulfill my ministry? Well, we just went through it in the past several minutes together. It's by preaching the word in the way described by all the essentials combined. Here is the bookend. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. This package fulfills your ministry, Timothy. Paul has come full circle. Paul gives Timothy no tips about innovation, nothing about cultural engagement, except for the engagement in warfare against the fads and innovations of a generation whose main features are itching ears and a lust for novelty. Timothy, the remedy for itching ears is not ear tickling and storytelling. The true remedy is the faithful preaching of God's word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. A Christ-exalting ministry is not bent toward what people want. It is bent on God's glory and in giving what the people need, God's word. This faithful and final exhortation to Timothy is not just about his public ministry, during, during an hour or two each week when the church came together to worship and be taught. These commands cover all of daily life and ministry for every Christian and every kind of vocation. They govern our personal walk, our spiritual warfare, and our devotion to the word. So that brings us to our response. As we begin this new year, give thanks to God for the ministry of truth. Give thanks to God for the ministry of truth. It's been said that there's only one perfect part of a worship service. And I wholeheartedly agree with this. The only perfect part of a worship service is the reading of God's word. Because it alone is perfect. Psalm 1830, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Give thanks to God for the ministry of the truth. Because Paul tells Timothy, first and foremost, this is what he says in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public readings of the scripture and then to exhortation and teaching. We need to give thanks that our local church holds a high view of the scriptures because God does. 
Psalm 138, verse two, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word according to all your name. Dear people, we need to give thanks for the sound doctrine that we receive because doctrine today is not viewed as useful and people generally prefer practical preaching but a church without doctrine, sound doctrine, is like a house without a structure, a building without a foundation, Ephesians 2. We need to give thanks to the Lord that we have people here in this local church that are like an Ezra who had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And we, like the people, said to Ezra in Nehemiah 8 verse one, we need to always say to our pastors and teachers, bring the book, bring the book. Don't entertain us, don't tickle our ears, give us the word of God or we die. Number two, Don't compromise your ministry. As Eli, the high priest did when he failed to correct and discipline his sons, Hophni and Phinehas in 1 Samuel 2. Don't compromise. Be faithful. And understand this, your life, your life is your ministry. It's almost like how people say sometimes, I'm gonna go to worship. Yes, and we're gonna worship together in in singing and in the hearing of the word, but your life is to be a life of worship. Romans 12, one and two, right? He urges him by the the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, pleasing to the Lord. Your life is your ministry. So whether you preach from a pulpit or teach the youngest Sunday school class or stack chairs or run the sound booth or evangelize in the streets, whether you're single, in college, dating or married, young or old, whether you work in big business or corporate industry, whether you're an athlete or a world traveler, a fast food worker or a stay-at-home mom, our standard for speaking the truth and living the truth is no lower than this morning's text for you to proclaim his word in life and lip, in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort with great patience and teaching, and to be sober-minded, to endure hardship, to do the work of an evangelist, then you will fulfill your ministry. And then, when life ends, we'll be able to say with Paul, as he says in our text following, I have fought the good fight, that is, he was victorious in the warfare. I have finished the race, that is, he was victorious in his personal walk. And I have kept the faith, that is, he was victorious as a servant of the word of God. That's how I wanna finish. And that's how you want to finish. In order to do that, we need to seek God's grace to do much better than we are currently doing in obedience to these eight essentials for fulfilling our ministries, our lives. Don't follow worldly fashions. Don't follow evangelical fads. 
Don't follow the postmodern quest for innovation and going beyond what the scriptures say, but rather resolve to stick to the simplicity and honesty of Paul's philosophy of ministry. Preach the word. And in doing that, we'll let Christ, the word made flesh, alone be exalted. Let that be our New Year's resolution. Please pray with me. Lord, we have and, and will at times compromise what we say and believe. Thank you, Lord, that, that your love, your grace covers it all. Jesus, since you never compromised and you've given us your righteousness, that is our joy and hope and peace. So may we not be ashamed of the gospel for it alone is the power of God unto salvation. By your sustaining grace, Lord, may we be a people, may we be a church whose lives preach nothing but Christ and him crucified, risen, reigning, and who will return. Help us, Lord, to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, and may all that we do be done in the love of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.